Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, Joshua chapter 22. Today we begin Joshua chapter 22. And this chapter can easily and legitimately become a multiple week sermon. <laughs> In, a deep, in addition to just the teaching of, a, of the lesson, if I wanted it to be. It's that rich in information and theology and practical instruction for the believer. But I'm going to focus on just a few of the important principles contained herein. Th- those that I think we as part of the body of the modern people of God can probably identify with the best. Now this entire section of Joshua that's going to take us to the end of the book um, is framed by a concern for those parts of the people of Israel who live outside of the promised land. For those who live away from Israel proper, away from the sanctuary of God, and away from the priesthood of God. But there are also several deep and critical questions asked and answered in this chapter that are going to be faced by worshipers in every biblical generation, including our current one. And among those questions are, what is the proper worship of God? Where is the proper worship of God to take place? Who are God's people? But for me... The single question, one that's dealt with in this chapter, that's perplexed and maybe annoyed the church, perhaps as much or more than any other, is this one. Does my heartfelt sincerity and good intentions as a disciple of Jesus trump God's written and clear commands? That's a tough one, isn't it? Now, I don't know that we're going to get full satisfactory answers to just even those four of the many questions um, that this exquisite chapter of Joshua raises but I'm going to at least try and give us grist for the mill and and maybe a framework to think about it all so turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22 if you have the complete Jewish Bible it's page 265 Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have done everything that the servant that Moses, the servant of, of Adonai, has ordered you to do, and heeded what I said and all the orders I gave you. All this time you have not abandoned your kinsmen, but have obeyed your commission as Adonai your God ordered. Now Adonai your God has given rest to your kinsmen as he told them he would do, so you too return to your tents and the land which is your possession, which Moses the servant of Adonai gave you beyond the Jordan. Only take great care to obey the mitzvah and the Torah, the commands and the law, which Moses the servant of Adonai gave you, to love Adonai your God, to follow his ways, observe his commands, cling to him, Serve him with all your heart and being. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. 
to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given an inheritance in Bashan. To the other half, Joshua had given one among their kinsmen on the west side of the Jordan. Now, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them, saying, Return with great riches to your tents, with very much livestock, silver, gold, bronze, iron, with great quantities of clothing. Share these spoils of your enemies with your kinsmen. So the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned. They left the people of Israel in Shiloh, Shiloh, and in the land of Canaan to go to the land of Gilead to the land they were to possess and which they already did possess according to the order of Adonai through Moses. Now when the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad and the half-tribe arrived in the area of the land of Canaan near the Jordan, they built an altar there by the Jordan, a large, impressive altar. The people of Israel heard about it and said, Look! The descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar by the frontier of the land of Canaan in the area of the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the entire community of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to wage war against them. The people of Israel sent Pinchas, okay, the son of Eleazar, the Kohen, to the land of Gilead, to the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And with him were ten leaders, one leader of an ancestral clan for each of the tribes of Israel. And each one was ahead of his ancestral clan among the thousands of Israel. And they came to the descendants of Reuben, descendants of Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and spoke with them. And they say, here is what the whole community of Adonai is saying. What is this treachery you've committed against the God of Israel turning away today from following Adonai in that you have built yourselves an altar thus rebelling today against Adonai? Is the guilt we incurred at Pure not enough for us? We, we haven't cleansed ourselves from it to this day even though a plague came on the community of Adonai. Is this why you have to turn away today from following Adonai? If you rebel against Adonai today, he will be angry tomorrow with the whole community of Israel. If the land you have taken possession of is unclean, then cross back over into the land which belongs to Adonai, where the tabernacle of Adonai is located, and take possession among us. But don't rebel against Adonai. Don't rebel against us by building yourselves an altar other than the altar of Adonai our God. Didn't Echan, the son of Zerach, commit a sin in regard to the things set aside for destruction? And God's anger fell on the whole community of Israel. He wasn't the only one who died for his crime. Then the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered the leaders of the thousands of Israel. The mighty one God is Adonai. He knows, and Israel will know, if we acted in rebellion or treachery against Adonai, then don't vindicate us today. We didn't build an altar in order to turn away from following Adonai or even to burn, offer, on, uh, offer on it burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifices as peace offerings. If we have, let Adonai himself require us to atone for it. Rather, we did this out of anxiety because we thought sometime in the future, your descendants might say to our descendants, you don't have anything to do with Adonai the Lord God of Israel, because Adonai made the Jordan the border between us and you. 
So you descendants of Reuben and Gad have no share in Adonai. And this way your descendants could make our descendants stop fearing Adonai. So we said, let us now make preparations and build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a witness between you and us, between our generations who will come after us so that we may perform the service for Adonai in his presence with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings so that your descendants will not say to our descendants at some future time, you have no share in Adonai. For this reason, we said, when they accuse us or future generations in this way, we'll say, look, here's a replica of the altar of Adonai which our ancestors made. Not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against Adonai and turn away today from following Adonai by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifices other than the altar of Adonai, our God, which stands in front of his tabernacle. Well, when Pinchas, the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the thousands of Israel who were with him, heard what the descendants of Reuben, descendants of Gad, and the descendants of Manasseh said, it satisfied them. Pinchas, the son of Eleazar the Cohen, said to the descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, the descendants of Manasseh, Today we know that Adonai is here with us because you have not committed this treasonous act against Adonai. Now you have saved the people of Israel from the anger of Adonai. So Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned from the descendants of Reuben and Gad and from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan and the people of Israel bringing word back to them. What they said satisfied the people of Israel. The people of Israel blessed God and said no more about going to wage war against the descendants of Reuben and Gad and destroying the land where they lived. The descendants of Reuben and Gad called the altar Aid, a witness between us that Adonai is God. When we ended last week, we saw that the land of Canaan was at rest from war now the land was by no means called Israel yet the newest residents of this land were just a loose confederation of 12 related tribes and not at all a politically cohesive nation the huge Israelite army had defeated and destroyed this combined military force of some northern Canaanite kings as well as an entire separate army of some southern Canaanite kings. Um, And Israel had also concluded many peace treaties with other and smaller Canaanite lords and potentates, a thing that was expressly against God's instructions, but it did provide in the short term for a sustained cessation of hostilities. Now, with those more formidable foes of Israel that held most of the Mediterranean coast of, um, uh, of the land and um, also a lot of the coastal plain that was kind of up in this area and a lot of villages scattered throughout the promised land, th- there existed among them something like what we might term Cold War that was going on between them and Israel. 
Israel knew full well that these remaining enemies were dangerous and they weren't to be trusted. And the remaining enemies knew full well that at some point Israel would likely decide to try and annex their territory because Israel's well-known theology demanded it. This, this was no military secret. Okay. But for now, both sides were satisfied to not be engaged in bloody battles with one another and thus they coexisted side by side in an, in an uneasy but nonetheless peaceful arrangement for the moment. Well, this lack of hostilities permitted Joshua to finish dividing up the land among those final seven tribes who had yet to accept their land inheritance. And once that was accomplished, then the Levites could be given cities to live in. And we just finished studying that. And once that was accomplished, the cities of refuge for accidental manslayers could be established and set into operation. And once that was accomplished there was no further need for a combined army of 600,000 men from all the 12 tribes of Israel. Look, God is mysterious beyond measure. But mankind is anything but. Mankind is generally predictable. Pretty simple in our behaviors and reactions. Our problem is that we tend to deny our own predictability and thus history is doomed to repeat itself. Okay. A whole series of events had to happen among the Israelites and their Canaanite enemies all in a very logical, very visible, very customary way so that man would do what was obvious for him to do as he moved along from one typical step to the next. God full well knows that. And even though much of what he knows we're going to do is wrong and cowardly and disobedient and self-destructive, he's still able to use that to achieve his purposes. And that's what was happening in the promised land, just as it still is in our era. Well, the initializing event of Joshua chapter 22 is this. The troops of Gad, Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh that took their land possession on the east side of the Jordan River in the area called the Transjordan means across the Jordan are really no longer needed to serve in the army because the reason for their participation in the conquest of Canaan has been accomplished. So, since they have been true to their word, Joshua will be true to the promise made to them. And that promise is that they can keep their land on the east side of the Jordan as their own, but they had to send a sizable number of troops to help the other nine and a half tribes seize Canaan. Turn your Bibles back a few pages to the beginning of Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 1. We're just going to read a few verses to remind us what went on here. After the death of Moses, the servant of Adonai, Adonai said to Joshua, the son of Nun, 
Moshe's assistant. Moshe, my servant is dead, so now get up and cross over the Jordan and you all the people to the land I'm giving them, the people of Israel. I'm giving you every place you'll step on with the sole of your foot. All the land from the desert and the Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates. All the land of the Hitti and on to the great sea in the west will be yours. No one will be able to withstand you as long as you live. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will neither fail nor abandon you. Be strong, be bold. For you will cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers I would give them. Only be strong and very bold in taking care to follow the Torah, which Moses, my servant, ordered you to follow. Do not turn from it, either to the right or the left. Then you will succeed in wherever you go. Yes, keep this book of Torah on your lips and meditate on it day and night, so that you will take care to act according to everything written in it. Then your undertakings will prosper and you will succeed. Haven't I ordered you be strong and be bold? So don't be afraid, because Adonai your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua instructed the officials of the people to go through the camp and order the people prepare for provisions, because in three days you'll cross this Jordan to go in and take possession of it. To the, Reubenite, to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember what Moses, the servant of Adonai, ordered you. Adonai, your God, has let you rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock will stay in the land Moses gave you on the east side of the Jordan. But you are to cross over armed as a fighting force ahead of your brothers to help them. Until Adonai allows your brothers to rest as he, allow, as he has allowed you and they too have taken possession of the land Adonai your God is giving them. At that point, you will return to the land which is yours and possess it, the land Moses, the servant of God, gave you in Ever ha, uh, Yarden to the east towards the sunrise. Thus, what is happening here in chapter 22 is closure. The book of Joshua begins with the enlisting of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh to fight alongside their brethren for Canaan, and now the book ends with victory and their honorable discharge from the military service. Now, what must have been some type of formal ceremony, Joshua tells these three tribes, two and a half tribes technically, that they have kept their word, did as God told them to do, and the result of their obedience is that God has fulfilled his promises in a timely manner. If we go back and look again at Joshua 1.15, the verse says that the, that the Transjordanian tribes are to remain fighting alongside their fellow Israelites until those nine and a half tribes have achieved their rest in the promised land. Therefore, as a fitting conclusion, we read in Joshua 22.4 that now Jehovah your God has given rest to your kinsmen as he told them he would. So the circle has closed. Rest from war was promised and given, and so now it's time for these three tribes to go to their homes on the east side of the Jordan River and to rejoin their families and those left behind to protect the people in the land and to establish their economy. Now notice one little thing in chapter 22, verse 4. Joshua says that the three tribes can return to their tents. Now, this is a very literal translation. 
And it points out something we must always be on guard for in the Bible. The sayings of common speech within a culture don't necessarily mean precisely what they say. Okay. The three Transjordanian tribes were not living in tents. They were living in villages and cities and permanent housing. It's just that the language of wanderers, this was the generation of whom most were born out in the wilderness, had become, that, that language had, had become embedded in their everyday thought, and so they can just continue to use words and phrases that Bedouins might use. Just as it's common in our own language to use phrases that are really only understood within our own culture, but we never really think about the words and what they mean. So it was then, and we're going to find lots of that in the Bible. Why do we have to be on guard for it? Because otherwise we're liable to take a string of words as a literal biblical principle, but in fact, it was only a common idiom that meant something else entirely to those who were speaking it. Now, as part of this decommissioning ceremony of the three tribes, Joshua enjoins upon them the words of Moses, a goodly part of which, by the way, comes from Deuteronomy 6 and the blessing commonly known as the Shema Israel. He exhorts the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh to always follow the Torah of Moses, to always love Yehovah with all their hearts and minds. And it's kind of interesting to me that in verse 7 we get a historical footnote um, that's included in these Hebrew scriptures to remind the reader that Manasseh held two separated portions of land. One on the west bank, here's the Jordan River here, one on the west, uh, rather, one on the west side, one on the east side. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this that will start to become apparent as we go through this in future lessons. But for now, just let me say that without doubt, part of the reason that this was inserted here, at this point, was to answer the third question that I told you at the outset we would address in this chapter. And it is this. At any given time, who are God's people? Big question. Now, as a final kind of combination, exhortation, blessing, Joshua says that these three tribes should take with them livestock, precious metals, and clothing. These items, you see, were the spoils of war that they had won in battle. Now, I've mentioned in past lessons that it was the norm for that era that every man was allowed to loot and take valuable items from his defeated enemy. It was kind of in lieu of a paycheck. I can only assume that these items had been authorized by God to go to these soldiers and weren't set apart as his holy property. In any case, there was apparently an enormous amount of it in their possession. And it was necessary for Joshua to make it clear, really, to the nine and a half tribes that would remain in the promised land, that it was okay for these three tribes to take their portion with them when they went home. Well, as we read this, we realize we're having one of these kumbaya moments going on here. 
Or so it seems. I mean, everything is good. Everybody's happy. Goodwill is flowing. Everybody's hugging. But just underneath all this is a psychology that's completely normal but problematic for men. Suspicion and mistrust of one another. It's all well and good and gracious to hug and kiss one another and call each, call each other brother when we're together. It's quite another to behave that way once we part company. The reality is that beneath the surface was simmering an us and them mentality. There was the us of the nine and a half tribes on the one side of the Jordan and the them of the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. This feeling was mutual and it was going to lead to immediate trouble. Now, home for the two and a half tribes wasn't far away. It was just a couple of miles across the Jordan. But it may as well have been a thousand. Because then as now, the Jordan River was not only a naturally occurring geographical boundary that divided territory, it was seen and understood to be a spiritual boundary. To the west of the Jordan was the promised land. To the east was outside the promised land. Inside the promised land was the earthly dwelling place of God. Outside of the promised land he had no home. Now despite the several decades of training and instruction and experiences all of the tribes of Israel had jointly lived out in the presence of Jehovah, the common ways of the world to which they were all too familiar clung to these Hebrews like barnacles to appear. Okay? They still didn't grasp that there was only one God. They still had not yet internalized that God had no physical limitations upon him and thus he observed no territorial boundaries like the rest of the world did. For the Hebrews, crossing over a river meant that you might be leaving behind the rules and the rulership of one God for another. So suddenly, understanding this, these Transjordanian tribes become anxious. Now that they're leaving Canaan, where is their God? Will their brethren on the West Bank, still allow them to continue participation in the all-important worship rituals? Or are they going to be left out in the cold once they leave Canaan? The religious center of Canaan had been moved to Shiloh in the tribal territory of Ephraim. And as we discussed in a previous lesson, this was not a particularly convenient location, even for those tribes who had taken their land inheritance inside of Canaan. But for those Transjordanian tribes, it was a particularly challenging journey to get to Shiloh, to say the least. Now, psychologically, the three tribes of the East also wondered if they'd be remembered by both the leadership of Israel and even by God himself. In fact, they, were they still under... Joshua's authority or had the discharge ceremony released them 
from submission to Joshua. And if they weren't under Joshua's authority, then were they still part of Israel? In other words, while joy was abounding all around, this was a time of transition and uncertainty, especially for Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Things were changing, but into what? Now, for you congregation and political and family leaders in the audience, what would you do in that situation? Probably the same thing these three tribes did. Have a meeting. The leadership got together, discussed their concerns, and the agreed solution, at least part of the solution, was to build an altar to their professed God, Yehovah. A large, impressive one, verse 10 says. Not a little stone one as a kind of um, impromptu memorial, but rather something pretty grand and, and, and greatly symbolic. Something that would make their people feel better. Now, if you're listening and actually thinking about all this, a good logical question right about now would be, what in the world does building a grand altar accomplish that comforts the people's worry? What about that? Well, guess what? When the leaders of the nine and a half tribes of Canaan found out about it, that was their response too. What could possibly be the purpose of building such a grand altar? To their thinking, it had to be nothing short of those three Transjordanian tribes deciding they were going to go worship another god. But just as serious, they built that altar not on the east side of the Jordan, in their own territory. They built it on the west side, on the west bank, in Canaan, inside the land of promise, in territory that belonged to another tribe. As a matter of fact, it was probably Benjamin's. When the people living in Canaan heard about all this, they went ballistic. The tribes that had disbanded their army instantly got it back together. They went to Shiloh. That was the place where the tabernacle was located and from where Joshua ruled. And they decided they were going to make war on their rebellious brethren. The same relatives that had stood shoulder to shoulder on the battlefield for all those years, giving their lives for, for one another, were about to go to war among themselves. Oh, I could really go in a lot of directions with that one. Look at what we do to one another. Okay? We'd sooner make war in our own family than we would with an enemy. Here was Joshua for the last several years pulling his hair out, simply trying to get the seven, last seven of the Israelite tribes to accept their free territorial allotment, a promised gift from God, but they wouldn't do it because it would have meant battling enemies in their territory. Further, each tribe would have had to go it alone for the most part because Joshua's army was in the process of disbanding. Each tribe was now only for itself. A brother Hebrew was getting attacked in a neighboring territory. Too bad. His territory is his burden. A brother Israelite was in desperate need of help to defeat an enemy who was bedeviling him. Too bad. Not my problem. 
But let a brother tribe upset you. Let a brother tribe do something you don't really understand. And all the tribes gang up, drop what they're doing, and decide they're going to go attack them. And what a lesson for us. Okay. In fact, so much of what Jesus told us to do within the church government is modeled after what Joshua and the leadership of Israel did in response to this very dangerous situation. When someone to just attack the three tribes, assume the worst, and then punish them and ask questions later. Well, at Shiloh, Joshua told Pinchas, Eleazar the high priest's son, to go to the leadership of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh to lodge their complaint and to investigate. And along with Pinchas went one leader for each of the ten tribes who lived in the promised land. Now, as an aside, these were not the ten tribal princes, the ten tribal chieftains. Okay? Rather, they were ten chosen clan leaders, one from each tribe, who were to go and represent the whole tribe. They went as a delegation, if you would, to the east side of the Jordan River into the land of Gilead and there they confronted the Transjordanian tribal leadership. And the delegation accused the three tribes of treachery. And the building of the altar was at the heart of the problem. At least the stated concern of the delegation was that the building of that altar was a horrible affront to Jehovah, and that every Israelite was going to wind up being punished for it. And they go on to give the historical examples of Achan, who took some spoils of war at Jericho that was supposed to be devoted only for God. And, and then they spoke of this event at Baal Peor, when Israel committed idolatry. And they said that if only those three tribes who had built that altar for the, would be the ones that suffered for this sin, that would be one thing. But God has shown and proven that all Israel is going to suffer for such enormous offenses against him. In the case of Baal Peor, 24,000 Israelites died by divine plague. In the case of Achan, his entire household was wiped out in, a divine, in divine wrath. What might God do to the 12 tribes of Israel if they allowed the atrocity of knowingly allowing worship at an unauthorized altar built in an unauthorized place by unauthorized people. In other words, it's a well-established God principle that while communal guilt might not be established upon everyone for the sins of one, communal burden will be established when God's holiness is attacked and it was caused by negligence or inaction of the group. It's not that Echan's family sinned, as Echan did. It's that they suffered the consequences because of their association with Echan and thus were burdened with the consequences of Achan's sin. Pincus and the ten leaders from Canaan may have been concerned to some degree for the well-being of their Transjordanian brothers. But they were terrified for themselves and their own families. And rightly so, I might add, they had learned those hard lessons in the most devastating fashion. Then in verse 19, 
the delegation asks the leaders of the three tribes a very penetrating and in some ways sarcastic question. They say, if you believe you possess, of course, meaning the land on the other side of the Jordan, the land that you possess, if you believe that land is unclean, then cross back over into the land that belongs to Jehovah. Now, I have to tell you that a Christian philosopher could make a doctoral thesis out of this question and what's behind it. Okay. In a nutshell, the gist of it's this. The three tribes of the East say they want to be identified with Israel and the God of Israel and that they're worried that such an identity might be taken away from them. But then they turn around and respond by building this illegitimate altar not in their own land but across the Jordan River back in the Promised Land. If they want their own land to be sanctified and if they want their land and the people living in, the, in their land to be associated with those who live in the Promised Land why wouldn't they build their altar on their own land for their own people to see? And in a kind of sarcasm the questioner provides his own answer to what is really a rhetorical question by saying that the three tribes must view their own land as unclean. Conclusion. If you think your land is so unclean that you won't even build your own altar there, how could you possibly think about permanently living there? Hmm. Then the questioner, who I suspect, by the way, is Pincus, considering the subject is the altar, continues by saying effectively, look, you're welcome to move into the promised land alongside the rest of us. We'll even carve out territory to accommodate you. And this was a very generous offer from Pincus. But then again, only a man with authority over more than his own tribe could ever make that kind of an offer. All the more reason I suspect that the person doing most of the talking in this section of Joshua was Pincus, very important, very revered priest. Of course, underlying this question about uncleanness of the Transjordan land is a whole mountain of innuendo. For the priest, Pincus, to openly suggest that maybe, maybe that land and the Transjordan is unclean for the free tribes. Three tribes is probably intended to confirm the worst fears that so perplexes the minds of those living there. Since the land they have chosen is not the promised land, and they fully understand that, then perhaps Jehovah is not there with them either. If he's not with them, then perhaps they'll not receive his blessings or his protection. And if God is not there, then it must be because the land isn't sanctified. I mean, this is a very serious problem if their fears are valid. Now, this idea of living on non-sanctified land will surface again hundreds of years later when the residents of Judah are exiled to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar.
and they deal with this problem of trying to live a Torah lifestyle in a pagan place on defiled land, breathing defiled air, eating unclean food, because the God of this land is a Babylonian God, not Jehovah. Therefore, they lived in a perpetually defiled condition outside the promised land, with no temple to worship in, no priesthood, no altar to atone for their sins. I mean, I cannot stress enough something that I have talked with you about on a number of occasions now. The nine and a half tribes lived in the promised land by their own choice. The two and a half tribes lived outside the promised land by their own choice. Now, it was not sin per se that those two and a half tribes chose the Transjordan as their home. In fact, Moses, and apparently God, allowed it without so much as any kind of a recorded warning. But this decision put them in a very precarious situation. Okay. God had promised a land of special blessing and protection, accompanied, by the way, with his personal presence for his people. But here were some who claimed to be his people, three tribes, who decided it was more economically advantageous to live near the promised land, but not in it. People who said no thanks to God's provision. They think a place of their choosing is better than the place of his choosing. And on the surface, who could have argued with it? At the same time, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh certainly wanted all the blessings afforded by God's presence like their brothers had, who lived over in the Promised Land. They just wanted all those blessings to be added to the perceived advantages they saw of living over in the Transjordan, outside of the Promised Land. After having spent some years in the Promised Land, fighting and spilling their blood, they, they sensed something different about Canaan than any other place. But the pull of all those worldly advantages of living in the Transjordan just seemed to trump what they knew deep down they ought to do. Move into the land of the Father's rest and provision that he'd been preparing for them since Abraham. So, they apparently thought they could just kind of get around this whole problem. They'd just build an altar, their own altar, in the promised land. And that somehow that would buy them something of his favor in their land. Is that how you live your life? Do you see the blessing of the promised land and you want it? But the pull of the world outside of the promised land is just too great to resist. So you think, maybe I can have both. Maybe I can receive the blessings of, of those who live within the boundaries of God's kingdom while I live outside of it. It never worked out too well for those three tribes of the Transjordan. Their land blessings were pretty short-lived. They also didn't get the blessing of living near to God. Luke 16, 13, no servant can be slave to two masters. 
For he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and mammon. Beginning in verse 21. The tribal leaders of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh respond to these accusations from Pincus. And, and the tone is that they're utterly flabbergasted by what they hear. And they explain this is all just one big misunderstanding. That in no way were they contemplating worshipping another god, nor, and just as important, were they planning on actually sacrificing on that altar that they built. And in typical Middle Eastern fashion, they begin their defense of their actions by glorifying their god's name to show their continuing dedication to him. Our complete Jewish Bible says that the Transjordan tribal leadership proclaimed, The Mighty One, God, is Adonai. Other versions say, God, the Lord God. Still others say, the Lord is God of gods. In Hebrew it says, El, Elohim, Yehovah. The gist of this is that by saying, El, Elohim, it is making it clear that they are speaking of the highest God of all gods. By saying, Yehovah, they are saying that Yehovah is, the, is that highest God of all gods. So it leaves no doubt to the listeners that they can put to rest any thought that the intention was to change gods. Further, they say that they have not committed rebellion against Jehovah, and they also didn't build an altar to sacrifice on it. And although the English translations kind of ruin the drama and detail of it, they say that they're not going to do Ola, Mincha, or Shlamim sacrifices. Those three named sacrifices in Hebrew are representative of the entire range of Levitical sacrifices from the mandatory to the voluntary, from sacrificing animals to offering produce. Thus it makes it clear that no kind of sacrifice was being contemplated on that altar. At least that was their intention. Now, what's the big deal? If they did build that altar, not meaning sacrifice to another god, but they did fully intend to perform Torah-ordained sacrifices upon it to Jehovah, even though they denied that. Well, let's recall several commands contained in the law about that subject. Sacrifices were to occur only at the great altar at the tabernacle. Only God's appointed Levite priests were to perform those sacrifices and the place of the tabernacle and thus the altar was to be only one place. And it had to be where God directed it to be and that place was currently Shiloh. There were many other associated commandments that made it a terrible offense to sacrifice on any other altar using any other procedures even if the intent was to sacrifice to Jehovah. Rather, the three, three tribal leaders explained, their motive was that they were worried that once they left the promised land and they returned to the Transjordan, that they would no longer be considered God's people, Israelites. And thus, they would not be included as beneficiaries of the Levitical sacrifices and rituals. They were especially afraid, they said, that as time passed and future generations came and went, that those Israelites who lived in Canaan, in the Promised Land, 
would deny that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh ever even aided the nine and a half tribes in their conquest or even that they were all part of the same people and same nation, Israel, worshiping the same God, Jehovah. So they claim. They built this altar not as a place of sacrifice, but as a monument of remembrance. Or better, as a witness and aid to their loyalty to the God of Israel and to their own heritage. Pincus and the Israelite leadership accept their explanation. They go back to Canaan. They tell the people about it. And war is averted. We'll continue with this chapter next week.